Thin Air Podcast is supported in part by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. Patrons get rewards for their support, things like stickers, blogs about what we're working on, and more. We recently released our 10th bonus episode, which featured missing persons cases in the news and extras from our last episode on Paul Franzak. Once you become a donor, you'll have instant access to all of our Patreon-exclusive content. So if you want more Thin Air Podcast, check us out at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. Today's episode of Thin Air Podcast is supported by Wink. Wink is a direct-to-consumer winery revolutionizing the way you discover, buy, and share wine. Wink is offering our audience members who are 21 and over and live in the U.S. a $22 credit plus free shipping on their first order of four bottles of wine as a new member of Wink. So if you want to get this offer and try some delicious wine, go to trywink.com slash thin air. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash thin air and get $22 off when you become a new member. The hobo spider has a complicated reputation. Native to Europe, it traveled to the Pacific Northwest in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, likely from ships which carried their eggs. It's also known by its Latin name, Tejanaria agrestis, or aggressive house spider. It's brown, usually with a V-shaped pattern down the middle of its back, along with other varying stripes and markings. The hobo spider uses a funnel web to catch its prey, and usually avoids humans, but has been known to wander into houses occasionally. Once there, its bite can do extensive damage to the unwitting human that it comes into contact with, or so I've always been told. Darwin K. Vest had always been interested in spiders, snakes, and other living creatures and insects. Born in Idaho Falls, Idaho in 1951, he grew up fascinated by things that would creep most people out. When we would go over there as children, I'm talking me, elementary school, third grade, their garage was just snakes. That voice you heard is that of a close family member of Darwin's. For reasons that will become clear later, she asked that her real name not be used, so for the purposes of the podcast, we'll call her Annie. I mean, spiders, and it was his entire life. He was a self-taught toxinologist, and people get that wrong. They say toxicologist, and it's toxinologist. Throughout his life, Darwin was known as being incredibly bright and having a scientific mind. As he grew older, he specifically became interested in the study of venom, toxins, and poisons, and what effect they had on humans, thus the toxinologist. Darwin's close friend, Eric Seneff, described how Darwin would often capture the creatures himself. Spring, he'd go out and get a rattlesnake, you know. It was always exciting to go with him, you know. He'd know where a nest was, and as soon as it got above 60 degrees, started getting some warm days, they'd come out of their nest, and they were easy to find, and um, Anyway, he'd always try to get get a feisty one. He'd say, I'd get a feisty one, you know. <laughs> yeah, which seems completely terrifying to me, but... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it, was, it was interesting, yeah, of course. Yeah, it was always exciting with Darwin. In 1986, Darwin was researching the hobo spider at Washington State University. 
I read online that Darwin even helped to give these spiders the nickname Hobo, but I could never figure out if that was true or just a rumor. They're called hobo spiders, by the way, because it is thought that the species arrived in distant U.S. cities by train, I guess like a hobo would. Darwin did, however, conduct a study about the effects of a hobo spider bite, which had a huge impact on how toxic it was perceived to be. In Darwin's study, he had hobo spiders bite rabbits and observed that the bites resulted in lesions, bleeding, and necrotic, which means rotting, tissue. The title of his abstract is called Envenomation by Tejanaria agrestis in Rabbits and was published in the scientific journal Toxicon. The effects of Darwin's study were far and wide. As a result, many, including the CDC, issued reports that the hobo spider caused necrotic tissue damage in humans. Because of the implications of what Darwin found, the hobo spider became one to be feared. But in the years since Darwin's study, some scientists have challenged the idea that hobo spiders are capable of causing this kind of damage in human tissue. It has been argued that there are no confirmed cases of a hobo spider bite causing lesions in people, meaning when someone is bitten by a spider, there hasn't been an expert there to identify the spider as being a hobo spider rather than, say, another toxic spider, like a brown recluse, for example. Some scientists even argue that its Latin name, agrestis, has been confused to mean aggressive, when actually the term can mean of the fields. In other words, what we may think we know about the dangerous hobo spider may not be true at all. And something that I had long considered to be dangerous and scary is something that in reality might be much more innocuous. So what is the hobo spider? A dangerous predator, a threat with a bite to be feared, or is it just a spider that you might not wanna cuddle up next to it, but that's less toxic and more mundane? Darwin himself would not be one to shy away from the academic debate over the hobo spider's toxic bite, and he would likely defend his work with additional scientific study. But since he vanished in June of 1999, his work has remained unfinished. And in trying to understand Darwin's life and his work, which really was his passion, I found a parallel between the surrounding uncertainty of the hobo spider's dangerous reputation and the story of Darwin himself and of the circumstances of his mysterious disappearance, which has lingered ever since a rainy night in early June of 1999. I'm Jordan Sims, and this is episode 39 of Thin Air Podcast the strange and possibly nefarious circumstances of the disappearance of Darwin K. Vest. I know he went to the University of Washington, or he, I mean, did some internship there or something. You know, anyways, he was in he was in Seattle. You know, he did have uh, some years at the university, but uh, I don't know if he, yeah, I don't think he actually got his degree. But yeah, he was self-taught that way. Yeah, of course, you know, he spent you know hours on the internet, you know, researching things. You know. After college. 
Darwin returned home to Idaho Falls. Though he never received a formal degree, Darwin was considered an expert on all things toxic. He set up his own business called Eagle Rock Research. He wrote, conducted studies, and was even on the Discovery Channel a few times. He was frequently called on to speak about his work, even being asked to testify for the FBI and CIA. He would be an expert witness at trials. He was, you know, he was helping out. So yeah, he didn't have a regular job, you know, but uh, he spent like all he spent all day, you know, on his computer researching things. Well, he was always doing lectures, of course, and he would set up the uh, the state fair, of course, with this booth. You know, he'd and he'd do that without uh, any, uh, you know, monetary income or anything. He'd, he'd spend a whole, you know, nine, ten days at the fair every day, you know, uh, talking to people, and he always had the most interesting exhibit because he would see had live specimens. In Idaho Falls, Darwin always lived with or nearby to his mother, Margaret. The two were very close throughout Darwin's life, and Darwin had friends, but he didn't really have any romantic relationships, as Eric described. She needed him, you know. They were close companions. He had a place to, to stay and live and everything else because he was not, you know, he didn't have a steady income. You know, the pursuit of wealth or money was not really one of his, his things that he was interested in, you know. It was his re- research. He was just, a, you know, that way. Well, he was, you know, he was a complicated individual, you know. He was, of course, very, you know, intelligent, very, you know, scholastic, knowledgeable. Uh, I mean, he was melancholy at times. I mean, he was he was alone. But he was asexual, I think. You know, he was one of these people that just, was just really one of these unique people that you meet uh, once, you know, in a blue, you know, that just, it was just kind of, wired differently than most people. I mean, he wasn't really one that, you know, pursued, you know, love, romance, money. You know, he was really quite, you know, he was a true scientist, really. He was a one of kind. And he was just a brilliant man, a great conversationalist, smart. Um, But he did have some, I read where someone thought maybe he was autistic in a high-functioning way. I don't know if that's true at all, but... What I know a little bit about that would maybe fit that thinking kind of retrospectively. People describe him as odd, and I would say that's fair. While Darwin was more introverted, he did like to go out to a variety of bars in Idaho Falls, and he did like to drink. Of course, Darwin kind of enjoyed, uh, you know, hanging out with some of the, you know, the more seedier life of uh, Idaho Falls. I think he just kind of enjoyed just a variety of company. No matter who he was with, somebody I would consider a low life, Darwin wouldn't look at him as a low life. You know, he was just, you know, willing to talk to anybody, no matter their status or, you know, whatever, whoever they were, you know. And uh, uh, he was just a very uh, personable and, and uh, interesting guy, you know, and quite sociable. Though Darwin had a car, he often preferred to walk usually by the Snake River, which winds its way close to the center of Idaho Falls. When he did go out to the bars, he usually walked home. He was not really social in a way where when you and I maybe think of social, we go out and, you know, meet with a bunch of friends and we're social. He had a really good friend, Eric, and he did meet with him often. But oftentimes, Darwin would go out alone. And he always walked. Sometimes he wouldn't go to the bar. He would just go walk around the river. He took a a nightly, daily walk. It was often to the bar because he did drink. Probably would be classified as an alcoholic by me. I want to speak for everyone. For many, 
The story of Darwin's disappearance began in 1996, three years before he actually vanished. On the night of March 5th, Darwin was hanging out and drinking at a dive bar called Billy's. It was kind of a melting pot, you know, there'd be, you know, there'd be biker type people, but then there'd be like, you know, professional people would hang in there. It was kind of just, a, you know, kind of a beer joint kind of place. And But he'd go in there. I wasn't with him that night, but he, he'd go in there. I, it wasn't exactly one of my more favorite places, but, you know, I'd go in there with him occasionally. Because of what happened later that night, we have a record of the events in Darwin's own words through a statement he later provided to police. We have these records because of Annie, who has done extensive research on her own for Darwin's case. Here's what Darwin said happened on the night of March 5th and the early morning hours of March 6th. Quote, Around 9.30 p.m. that night, I took my nightly walk around the Idaho Falls Greenbelt and then went to Billy's for a bowl of chili and a bit of relaxation. I arrived at Billy's around 10.15 p.m. Upon arrival there, I noted that there were perhaps 20 people in attendance, most of whom I did not know, and some who were being quite loud and boisterous for a Tuesday night. I sat myself at the corner in the northern end of the building, where I could watch the crowd and be more or less by myself. I left around 1am on foot. The next thing that I can recall, I was getting out of the backseat of a vehicle." End quote. It's unclear when Darwin accepted the ride and why, but he did. In the car, there were two men, one named Don Ellingford and another man named Randy Walker. The car stopped close to Darwin's house, and when he got out, the men attacked him. And at some point, they decided to kick him out and steal his wallet. They assaulted him, they beat him up, they left him for dead in a gutter. Darwin's statement goes on to read, quote, I recall yelling at him, what in the hell are you doing? Then being knocked to the ground and kicked. I watched the assailant return to the vehicle. I passed out for an indeterminate amount of time after that. My next recollection was that of an Idaho Falls police car and an officer who I called out to. A police officer had been canvassing the area and had seen a suspicious vehicle in the area, which he tried to follow the vehicle, and it sped off as if to elude the police officer. And then as he rounded a corner, he saw Darwin in the gutter. And he stopped suit of the vehicle to help Darwin. That's how they found him. And so then he helped Darwin home and and then got a statement from him, which Dar Darwin was really injured. The officer walked Darwin to his house, but he was so shaken and injured that he couldn't remember what had happened to him. To continue from his statement, Darwin wrote, I was very shaky at that point and could not remember exactly what happened. I surmised that I might have slipped on the ice on the way home. We both agreed that my memory would be better after I got some sleep. It took him a while to sleep off the alcohol, and then when he did wake up, he realized how bad of condition he was in, and he went to the hospital and he called the police back. Darwin wrote, Upon awakening, I arose and examined the injuries I sustained. It was obvious that the extent of those injuries could not have been caused by a slip on the ice. I had received multiple contusions to the head and face, had bled profusely from the back of the head and from the nose and mouth. 
An examination of the oral cavity revealed considerable swelling and laceration to the upper lip, and also that the upper anterior gum line had been severely damaged, exposing the root of at least one tooth. The memory of what had happened began to return." End quote. The next day was when Darwin wrote the statement I've been reading from, and it was only then that police began to piece together a series of crimes that had happened the night before. After stealing Darwin's wallet and beating him, the two men traveled to a nearby Hampton Inn, where they rented a room and posed as Darwin using his credit card. Don Ellingford later made a statement to police indicating that after checking in, they went to a nearby Perkins restaurant and ate breakfast. They also filled up the gas tank, both of these using Darwin's credit card. They then went back to the hotel where Ellingford stole a TV and a clock radio. He was arrested later the following morning, strangely outside of the Bonneville County Jail and ultimately ended up at the Idaho Falls Jail, where they were trying to bail out his wife, Don Ellingford's wife. Don Ellingford had an extensive criminal record before the attack on Darwin that night. He was an escapee from Washington. He had escaped a drug manufacturing charge. He ended up in Idaho in February of 96, where he was charged for drug possession or manufacturing. He transferred in for a court date to Idaho Falls on March 5th of 1996 and literally attacked Darwin the next day. Darwin decided to press charges and to take Ellingford to trial for the assault and robbery. He also decided that he would testify against Ellingford. And as the trial was underway, Darwin received a strange phone call. I know at one time Darwin had told me that Ellingford had called him up. This is during the you know, trial, you know, we were getting ready for the trial and asked Darwin not to uh, testify against him. Darwin was telling him, you know, what, what calls this guy has. He would call him up and ask him not to uh, testify against him. Did Darwin, did he ever relate to you feeling intimidated or scared about testifying against Ellingford? Darwin was not one that would be scared. Never really very scared to, of anything, really. So, no, uh, you know, he thought it was ballsy of the guy to, I mean, I think that's even against the law, I think, you know, but uh, you know, tampering with a witness or whatever. I don't know if, it, uh, if Ellingford said anything necessarily like he was going to kick his ass or something, but no, it was more like he called me up and asked me to, you know, basically not testify against him. And basically, yeah, so I thought, oh, God, you know, has balls. Ultimately, Don Ellingford was charged with grand theft and two counts of forgery. Annie recalled that Don was hostile to Darwin in court. He was put in prison and sentenced to three years. He declared openly in court when he was sentenced that he would, would get Darwin. He literally says, I will get you. I basically sort of said, you know, Darwin, you got to watch out for yourself. You got to be a little more careful. I sort of would lecture him a little bit about it. Of course, he would just kind of shrug. Of course, we all kind of thought it was just kind of a freak accident. That kind of thing didn't really happen in Idaho Falls. Darwin felt satisfied that this guy was put behind bars where he belonged and basically kind of a good inning to a, to a bad thing, you know. Jump to three years and three months later, June 2nd, 1999. Darwin has largely moved on from the assault and trial. 
Darwin is still living in Idaho Falls. He's 48 years old, and he's still maintaining his business, Eagle Rock Research. He had also created a side business developing hobo spider traps. That day, he sent his sister Rebecca a fax, which read, quote, Got lots of good news today. One, the trap kits went into 100 Anderson Lumber Company locations in Utah, Idaho, and Nevada this morning. Two, we got the contract with Fred Meyer. They are, for starters, placing the kits in 50 stores in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. End quote. Darwin was having a great day, and he decided to celebrate with Eric that night. Well, he had just gotten the contract. You know, he had this uh, side business, so he was quite happy. And say he was excited about the, the future. He was quite up- upbeat that night. He was celebrating, actually. Because of Annie's research, we have all of the detective's notes on the work they did for Darwin's case. And from this, we have an exact timeline, as reported by Eric, bartenders, and other witnesses from that night. Around 8.15 p.m., Darwin and Eric met at a bar called the Frosty Gator to play computer trivia. Darwin walked to the bar as he usually did, despite it being a rainy evening. They have these trivia bars, so it's just, you know, it was a competition. Once in a while, we'd win the whole game, you know, nationally or something, you know. We played, uh, you know, first we'd have a few beers, you know, we'd sit there and have a few beers and we'd work together. So, yeah, so we, yeah, we had fun doing that. Yeah, I miss that. I miss that. I never... Yeah, I haven't done that since then, actually. Despite the recent sales of his spider traps, Darwin was broke. A later check of his bank account revealed that he had $38.30 to his name at the time, so it was Eric who was buying the beers that night. Eric bought a few rounds of pitchers, and both Darwin and Eric became a little tipsy. Around 10.30, a man named Lee Curtis, a friend of Darwin's, arrived at the bar. Darwin was always kind of leery of Lee. You know, Lee was uh, kind of a interesting, he was a very interesting guy, you know, intelligent. Uh, he was in the Army, spoke Arabic. Uh, he helped out in the Gulf War. Lee was kind of one that kind of hung around, you know, the same. We'd, we'd visit different watering holes downtown. I, I didn't know him real well. You know, I liked him, you know. Uh, he was an interesting guy, you know. Uh, seemed like, a, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I, I sensed some apprehension with Darwin when he was around Lee, but, uh, you know, they were acquainted, you know, and Lee also was one that walked, you know, around. So, I mean, they kind of, you know, they were kind of summer in that regard, I guess. They were, and Lee wasn't in town all that often, you know, he would come and come and come and go, you know, he'd, uh, you know, you'd see him around for a while and then you wouldn't see him for a year or something. You know, I'd, I'd occasionally run into him with, with, with Darwin, yeah. Around 11.45, Eric left the bar, leaving Darwin and Lee behind. Eric later reported that Lee assured him that he would, quote, take care of Darwin, end quote, likely because Eric noticed that Darwin, by this point, was intoxicated. You know, he didn't really drink that much. He mostly just drank beer, but uh, he just, you know, he had a kind of a, you know, just one of those individuals that just had kind of a a weaker resistance towards alcohol, you know, so it seemed like it affected him more, you you know, more severely than other people. You know, I mean, so he would get kind of disoriented, you know. We'd sit and have a couple of pictures of beer, but no, he would yeah, definitely would, you know, his face would get kind of droopy and it wasn't like it was a big deal, you know. The Frosty Gator closed at midnight, and the bartender later reported to police that both Lee and Darwin tried to get the bartender to serve them after closing. After he refused, Darwin and Lee left around 12.15 a.m. The two then decided to go to a different bar called the Golden Crown nearby, and they headed out on foot. 
How far away from the Frosty Gator is the Golden Crown? It's only about uh, maybe two or three blocks. Okay, so a, a short walk. Short, short walk. Can you describe what that bar is like? What is the Golden Crown like? It's in a like in a basement. It attracts more of a seedier crowd of Idaho Falls. So it's you know it's kind of a hot spot with a you know a variety of folks. Uh, you know more hardcore partiers, not like a trivia bar. And Darwin didn't generally go there. It was probably probably Lee's idea to go there. We didn't uh, hang out there. Not that it was a bad place. It had you know it had pool tables and but rowdier rowd- people, younger younger crowd, more you know more raunchy crowd. Yeah. A bartender at the Golden Crown named Teresa said that she saw the two men entering the bar sometime between 12.15 and 12.45. They walked to the Golden Crown. They went in. Apparently, um, they sat down at the bar where a witness says that Lee Curtis told her that his designated driver will have a coffee. And Darwin then sat at the bar and Teresa recognized Darwin and knew he didn't drink coffee, but she gave him a coffee anyway, and he said he didn't want it. Instead of taking the coffee, Darwin orders a Coors Light and sits at the bar. Shortly after Lee orders his own beer, the bartender noticed that he appears to have left. She assumed that he was playing pool in another part of the bar. Around 10 minutes after Lee leaves, Darwin stood up, his beer half-finished, walked to the north entrance of the bar, and left, alone. This was the last time anyone ever saw Darwin Vest. We'll be right back. Wink is targeting a new generation of wine drinkers who want to do away with all the pretense and simply enjoy reasonably priced, great wine. Wink custom tailors wines to the taste of the individual consumers and ships bottles of wine each month to your doorstep for $39 plus a $6 flat shipping rate. Wink is offering our audience members who are 21 and over and live in the U.S. a $22 credit plus free shipping on your first order of four bottles of wine as a new member of Wink. I've been enjoying a bottle of the 2015 Rosa Obscura, which is a red blend that's slightly sweet with notes of cherry, strawberry, and cocoa. If you want to try Wink's amazing and delicious selection for yourself and want to save some money doing it, go to trywink.com thinair to receive a $22 credit plus free shipping on your first four bottles of wine. That's trywink, T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash thinair. Darwin Vest was last seen leaving the Crown Bar in downtown Idaho Falls alone sometime around 12.30 a.m. on June 3, 1999. Soon after, Lee Curtis returns back to the bar, and he asks the bartender where Darwin was. She told him that he left. Soon after, around 12.45 a.m., Lee himself leaves the bar for good that night. The entire time frame that Darwin and Lee are at the Golden Crown is estimated to be only between 15 and 20 minutes. Darwin never made it home that night, and it was his mother, Margaret, who reported him missing the following day. 
Her report reads, quote, She was quite concerned, as she said Darwin never disappears like this. She said that he knows how much she worries, and that, as such, he will always come in and wake her to let her know he is home, end quote. Margaret's report begins the investigation into Darwin's disappearance. The first thing that police do is contact Eric. When did you find out that he went missing? Well, actually, the next day we, we went to Salt Lake uh, early for, we went to see the Phantom of the Opera, and we spent the whole day in Salt Lake, and uh, it wasn't until I came home that night, the following day, that uh, there was a message on the phone from his mother, and of course I was immediately very, very concerned. I went driving around downtown, maybe, I thought maybe you know, I was looking in dumpsters, so yeah, I did drive around town looking for him, you know. So this wasn't like, a, oh, he goes missing all the time, this was very unusual. Yes. The next thing that investigators attempt to do is contact Lee, which turns out to be difficult. The morning after Darwin went missing, Lee left town. They were able to contact Lee's brother, George, and their report reads, quote, He stated that he last saw Curtis as he was getting ready to leave for Salt Lake, and that everything seemed okay, end quote. On June 7th, a detective was assigned to Darwin's case, whose name was Detective Grimes. Detective Grimes sat down with Lee's brother George, as well as other members of Lee's family, many of whom were in town for a family reunion. According to Lee's family, some of them had been awake when Lee arrived home from the bar. They said this was at 1 a.m. They reported that someone dropped him off in a car, which they were unable to describe. Lee and his niece Mary stayed up until 3 a.m. talking, and Lee had mentioned that he had been with Darwin earlier in the night. We can't ask Lee about what happened that night. He died in 2015. But police were able to reach him on June 10th of 1999 over the phone. They summarized Lee's story of what happened as, quote, Darwin and Lee walked straight to the crown from the Frosty Gator. Darwin was very intoxicated to the point of staggering. They sat at the bar and Lee tried to get Darwin to drink coffee. Darwin refused to drink coffee. Around 12.30, Lee walked to the ATM on A Street but was unable to get it to work. Lee walked back to the Crown and Darwin was gone. Lee looked around the bar and in the restroom for Darwin but couldn't find him, end quote. From there, the details of how Lee got home are somewhat confusing and the detective's notes need some untangling here. So what Lee says is that he asks a bartender at the Crown, whose name is Merck, to order a cab for him, and then he can't remember if he waits outside or inside. Lee said that the cab arrived a little before 1 a.m., that there was a male driver and a female riding in the front seat of the cab, that the cab made no stops except for his house, and he got home around 1 a.m. Detectives, of course, chased down the cab records, but they're messy. They contacted a cab driver named Guy Warnick, who drove for a cab company called the Easy Way Taxi. He said that he remembered picking up someone, a male, at the Golden Crown around 12.45. The cab driver said that there was no woman in his car, and that he made a stop at a convenience store called Kick 66, which of course clashes with Lee's memory of the evening. Police gathered records from the dispatch of the cab company. Their note on this reads, quote, 
I met with Sandy, the owner of the Easyway Taxi, who gave me a computer printout of all the calls their business received on 6-2-99. Their calls show no record of a pickup at the Crown Bar. These notes include the early morning hours of 6-3-99, end quote. And from here, it gets even more confusing. Police later interview the bartender, whose name is Christine Merkley, also known as Merck. Lee remembered that Merck had ordered him a cab, but she denied doing this. Their conversation to her is summarized as, quote, Christine was doing a lot of office work that night and couldn't remember what was going on in the bar. She could not remember ordering a cab for Lee, end quote. So it would seem that no calls were made to the cab company that night, but it was possible that Lee was remembering the previous night, the early morning hours of June 2nd. The cab driver, Guy Wernick, wrote in his log that he did pick up someone from the bar that night and told police that the man he picked up matched Lee's description. Lee later reported that he had also been at the Golden Crown the night before. So how did Lee get home the night that Darwin went missing? His family reports that he's home by 1 a.m. and he tells a specific story about a woman being in the cab ride home. Police later discovered that there was another cabbie working that night whose name was Brad. And when questioned, he admitted that he brought his girlfriend along for his rides. But there are no records of him giving Lee a ride that night and he denies being at the Golden Crown or as giving anyone a ride from there. It does take a while, but eventually, Detective Grimes thinks he discovered who actually picked up Lee that night. Brad, the driver who denied picking him up, admitted that he would sometimes not log certain rides in order to pocket the fare. So there is a chance that Lee left the bar without making a call, seeing Brad parked nearby, and getting a ride home from him without the ride being logged anywhere. But for Annie, these inconsistencies with the cab, along with Lee's leaving the following day to Salt Lake, are incredibly suspicious. So then he came back to the bar and he called for a cab, but he couldn't get the cab, the call to go through. I don't know, he just has all these really weird stories. He left in the middle of the night, went to Salt Lake, and from there, he just keeps telling the same story, left in the middle of the night. Story, the stories are just, they, he, we got different conflicting stories from the family as to what time he got home and then what time he left. And On June 29th, 1999, Detective Grimes and a partner traveled to Salt Lake to interview Lee unannounced. No one answered the door. Detectives learned that Lee had traveled to Salt Lake in order to train near Boise with his National Guard unit. The following day, detectives are able to meet Lee at his apartment. The report begins, quote, Lee was very cooperative and told the same story as before with a few minor differences, end quote. It then goes on to tell the same story, that they left the frosty gator, that Darwin was stumbling. It then continues, quote, Lee talked with Darwin about going to the ATM to get money for a cab, and Lee thought Darwin understood he was coming back. Lee left and went to the first security bank ATM. Lee put his card in and got a receipt back from the ATM that said it would not work. 
Lee couldn't remember if the ATM was out of service or if his card wouldn't work for some other reason. Lee threw the receipt away, end quote. Lee then remembers that after leaving the ATM, that he went to a different bar called Karen's for a quick drink, and that when he got back to the Crown, Darwin was gone. He said he was only gone for 30 minutes at the most. Lee is then asked about the cab, and he again claims the bartender called a taxi for him. Detectives then ask Lee if he remembers ordering a cab the night before Darwin went missing, and Lee can't remember, but he said it was possible that he was confusing the two nights. The report then reads, quote, I explained to Lee that there was no record of a taxi taking anyone from the Crown to his father's house. Lee had no explanation for the discrepancy. I asked Lee if he had ever approached a taxi that was waiting outside the bar. Lee said he hadn't. I asked Lee if it could have possibly been another taxi than the easy way. He said that he thought the bartender called the cab and that they normally call the easy way taxi. The report continues, quote, I asked Lee what he thought happened to Darwin. Lee said Darwin was extremely intoxicated and thought it was possible Darwin was disoriented to the point of falling in the river or Willow Creek, end quote. It's Lee that Lee that says he thinks Darwin fell in the river. A later report indicates that Lee had also suggested this possibility in his initial phone interview as well. It reads, quote, During the earlier interview with Lee Curtis, Lee said that he had walked home with Darwin at various times in the past. There were times that Darwin would stop at a bridge and relieve themselves. He described the bridge as being one that crosses Willow Creek near I Street and Edgewater, or J Street and Edgewater. Darwin was really drunk, and Lee wondered if Darwin had fallen off the bridge. So he goes to the Golden Crown, and then he probably would have walked home. Seemed like he liked to just walk home in general, right? He did. I think it kind of gave him a good time to kind of, you know, sober up a little bit, maybe, you know. Yeah, he was taking care of his mother, you know. He liked to walk, you know, he walked a lot, yeah, every day. I'm just trying to picture his, I mean, do you know, I mean, can you estimate how long it would take him to get home from the Golden Crown? Probably about 20, 20 minutes to a half hour, probably about 10, 12, 12 blocks, maybe 15 blocks, probably maybe close to a half hour. He lived close to the river, just a block. You know, he grew up there. He was born there, lived there, raised there, and that's where he lived when he disappeared. Since Darwin preferred to walk home on foot, I wondered if his path would have taken him near or across the river. Would he have had to cross the Snake River or even get, you know, close to it to go home? No. Uh... Some people said that he liked to go there, maybe like to walk by it. Or do you think he would have done that that night? Just maybe, hey, I'm just going to go look at the river for any reason. No. Uh... And it was raining that night. He didn't like the rain. So on straight home. I checked Google Maps to look at the route that Darwin would have taken. The Golden Crown is downtown, and Darwin would have headed north to his home on Cassius Street. The fastest way would have been on major streets that are parallel to the river. No route crosses the river or requires him to walk along its greenbelt path to get home. He would have had to deliberately go that way and then kind of go out of his way to go home. But it wouldn't be impossible for him to leave the crown and go toward the river and then to his house. There is no path him directly 
by the Snake River that night. In talking to police, Lee also mentioned a creek that he and Darwin would cross on the usual route to Darwin's house. Willow Creek flows through neighborhoods that Darwin would walk to get home, but at the intersection that Lee suggests, which is J Street and Edgewater, the two entrances to this creek that I can see are covered by fencing, and like the river, one would have to walk to the edge of the creek to fall in. This doesn't mean that it's not possible, it just means that it doesn't look easy to fall in accidentally at the location which Lee described. After finishing their interview with Lee in Salt Lake, investigators asked to search Lee's car, home, and wallet, all of which he agrees to. His car is taken in for processing and is searched, and detectives see two areas in the car that could be bloodstains. He collects these for testing and... They lost the blood evidence in the police reports. And that it was logged in and sent. And then when our family questioned about the blood evidence long ago, when this first happened, they said the evidence was lost. Since our interview, Annie has met with the current chief of police in Idaho Falls, and she found out that the results of the test for blood in Lee's car had actually been found, and they were negative, meaning there was no blood. Detective Grimes continued to pursue leads, but only eight months later, Darwin's case is left inactive, pending further leads. With no evidence to tie Lee to any crime, and the fact that multiple family members placed him at home around 1 a.m. for the remainder of the night, little else was done to pursue him. But Darwin's family, and Eric, thinks it's likely that Lee was involved. I initially thought that Lee was responsible for Darwin's uh, uh, parents and death because he behaved very suspiciously. He took off to Salt Lake the next day and he was very uncooperative. They had a running down. You know, I, I felt Lee was the, the culprit. Darwin was afraid of Lee Curtis. Lee Curtis and Darwin were not really friends. He was someone that Darwin kind of kept, you know, his eyes on. So the fact that this all ended, you know, with Lee Curtis being the last person to see him. Despite all of the suspicion surrounding Lee Curtis and his activities the night that Darwin went missing, shortly after Darwin vanished, the family learned something else about another person who potentially could have hurt Darwin. And that's Don Ellingford, the man who assaulted Darwin in 1996 and who Darwin testified against in court. At the time of Darwin's disappearance, he was on a work release program, and he was at the Idaho Falls Work Center um, when the disappearance occurred. On the night of June 2nd, Don Ellingford was not in the penitentiary, as Darwin's family assumed, but was instead at a low-security work camp, just a 10-minute drive from the Golden Crown. Called the Idaho Falls Community Reentry Center, the facility is described on the Idaho Department of Corrections website as allowing inmates who are about to be released to, quote, work while being reunited with family and the community, end quote. So inmates would be let out during the day to work, but at night, all inmates were required to check in and sleep at the facility. 
When Detective Grimes asked about where Don Ellingford was the night of Darwin's disappearance, the police officer at the center claimed that Don Ellingford was incarcerated and accounted for on the night of June 2nd and the early morning hours of June 3rd. But then something happened. In the early evening hours of June 3rd, less than 24 hours after Darwin went missing, a man broke out of the same work facility that Don Ellingford was staying at, and he wasn't noticed or reported missing for hours. Our theory, my theory is, when you hear the rest of the story, that he did escape that night, absolutely 100%. Don Ellingford escaped on the night of 6-3-1999, early morning hours. And he went undetected for we don't know how long. He ended up back at the work facility that morning. We absolutely believe it 100%. In contrast, the detectives in Darwin's case, and there's been a few over the years, wrapped up all of their reports and notes on Darwin's case with the following, quote, There is no evidence of foul play, and it is likely that Darwin Vest drowned in the Snake River the night he disappeared. So, like the debate around the danger of the hobo spider, which is it? Was it malice? Did someone murder Darwin that night and get away with it? Or is that a misunderstanding of the evidence? And instead, the explanation is more mundane, that he somehow fell into the Snake River, never to be seen again. On the next episode of Thin Air Podcast, Annie helps us to lay out the case for foul play, who she thinks the players were, incriminating tips that have come in since, and exactly what she believes happened to Darwin that night. Also in our next episode, we work to understand why police believe that Darwin fell into the Snake River that night, the two strange sightings the day after Darwin's disappearance, their research into river and weather conditions, and what they think Darwin's state of mind was at the time he went missing. Join us in two weeks for our conclusion to the Darwin Vest story. Thin Air Podcast is produced by me and Daniel Calderon. Music in today's podcast was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at sessions.blue. Thin Air Podcast is supported in part by our donors at patreon.com slash thinairpodcast. One of the rewards is to be listed as an executive producer of our show. The executive producers of Thin Air Podcast are Paige Leno, Adam Barbary, Irene Ryan, Sarah Donahue, Elle McManus, Bridger Mobley, Skeeter Hall, Wendy Gabbery, Susan Anderson, Jack and Christy Lupian, Drusilla Dents, Rebecca Hardberger, Heather Cadieu, Bonnie Mortensen, Mistea Pena, Elizabeth Farmer, and Anthony Loper. Thank you all so much for your incredible support. <laughs>